Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the Cyber Resilience Act with an industry perspective. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Gregoire Gaunac, Digital Policy Consultant at Political Intelligence. Hi, Gregoire. Hello. Um, so uh, just for transparency, Gregoire, before we start, can you please disclose um, the, the for, for which companies you're following the Cyber Resilience Act? Yes, of course. So, well, my work is to advise digital companies from different sizes and interests uh, in their advocacy work in Brussels. Uh, my clients vary from size and types, and uh, usually I help different clients like uh, Google, Cloudflare, uh, the Internet Coalition in the United States, and uh, other actors like that uh, within our company uh, on the Siberian insights. So today I'm not representing any of them because I don't have the mandate to do that and they have different interests anyway, but I just representing myself and I will try to give you the current state of the debate surrounding the Cyber Resilience Act. Right. So um, the Cyber Resilience Act has been presented a few few weeks ago. Um, Actually, let me start uh, again. Uh, for full disclosure, we also uh, invited our representative of civil society to join this podcast uh, to have a little debate, but uh, due to a last-minute change of schedule, that was no longer. So, Gregoire, the, the Cyber Resilience Act was uh, presented a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. there was uh, plenty of time to sort of de- digest uh, this new proposal. So how would you summarize um, the uh, position and how how this file was received by the industry? Well, the Cyber Resilience Act is a very interesting piece of legislation because if you look at the history of previous legislation, everything was sectorial based and it is the first horizontal cybersecurity law. And I think it was also, well, a lot of industry players were really looking for this piece of legislation. I mean, the cybersecurity issues of connected objects has been known for a very, very long time by everybody. And nobody really cared until recently. And I think what changed is, well, first, the number of connected objects in the uh, European market with usually very, very low security standards and industries doing nothing to improve that. Also, the economic effects of these attacks. I mean, if you look at the impact assessment of the European Commission, they say that cybercrime is estimated at 5.5 trillion euros every year worldwide. That's a huge figure. So when Thierry Breton announced his project to publish a new regulation about a year ago in LinkedIn, nobody was surprised. I, I think it was the obvious next step after NIS2. So when I read a few different press releases from stakeholders, I would say the text was usually warmly welcomed by everybody because it was really necessary to protect the European market, but also to protect the privacy of users and consumers. However... What surprised a lot of industries, I think, was the scope of the text. The fact that software is considered as a product under the new legislative framework, it is something quite new. I mean, with software in scope, that means that much more companies uh, from from what was initially expected will be in scope. In the impact assessment, still, the commission estimates the impact 
uh, of, uh, on companies, um, well, if I remember correctly, it's about 600,000 companies that would be impacted. And most of them are SMEs and startups, and we have to keep that, keep that in mind. And if, you, if we tip dive really quickly on some previous statements from big actors uh, like Digital Europe, which is one of the biggest lobby in Brussels, they made very clear in a press release that uh, it was too much and too soon to include all software in scope. And linked to these issues, we have a bunch of new questions that arise. For instance, what about open source software? They are partially excluded in recital term, but only under very specific and limited conditions. And actors from open source software industry are raising their voice also. Uh, for instance, the Internet Society published an interesting piece not so long ago, uh, advocating for removing open source software from the scope because they fear that it could slow down innovation on one hand, and also that developers will just add in the term of conditions that the software can, cannot be distributed in Europe. So on this regard, and that's actually interesting, uh, the council, member states uh, within the council uh, just finished the first reading of the text and they are looking for input. So that's the right moment to send some comments, but member states are don't all agree about the current scope of the text. So it will be an interesting debate. So to sum up, I think we have the usual repartition of power, where in one hand you have consumer association like Buke or Annex that are asking for a broader scope. And on the other hand, we have the industry that is a bit worried about the potential implication of this kind of text. Uh, you touched upon a few aspects that I would like to develop. Um, so first of all, um, there is always, of course, this tension between uh, those who ask for more and those who ask for less. Um, what, in your view, would be the uh, consequences of including um, open source software into the scope? Uh, some member states like Germany and the Netherlands have been asking. Yeah, well, open source software is a delicate uh, aspect touching the text because they are the bare bone of everything that we use on internet. I mean, I'm an engineer myself and I do develop applications and usually I rely on dozens or hundreds of pieces of open source software. And if they will have to comply right away, maybe we'll have a problem because I have, like many questions, will I be able to use these pieces or not? And if not, how can I continue to work on my software, for instance? And then, I mean, the Sabay Reason Act is not only for IoT and softwares and products. It's the goal of the Sabay Reason Act is to, well, secure the full supply chain. So it will also impact manufacturers, of course, we just said it, but also suppliers. And on this regard, for instance, GitHub, which is one of the main well, marketplace, let's name it, for open source software, might also have to comply. And I have no idea how GitHub could like, check every single piece of software if they comply with EU law. It's not feasible on my, uh, on my uh, position. But it is indeed really important to talk about cybersecurity in open source software. The United States are doing it right now. I don't think that the Cyber Reasons Act is the right piece of legislation for that. I mean, everything related to software is a bit off. I mean, nobody manufactures softwares, we develop them. I mean, this 
piece of legislation was made for products. And when you read the text, you really feel it. Um, at the same time, you know, from a regulator perspective, uh, one could say the market has, uh, there was a market failure because um, IoT products were placed on the market without proper betting. Sometimes the manufacturer would even know that there were some security flows and put them on the market anyway. So now you, since since you didn't manage to to regulate this on your own, now um, now we put uh, binding rules in place, and uh, we will also include more things into the scope because we want to make this future proof. Um, therefore, I mean. You know, going too far, it's a concern that the industry might have, but how does it touch, you know, uh, European consumers, for example? Well, that's also an important point you just underlined. Uh, I think everybody understands that this law is absolutely necessary. If you look at previous examples, for instance, I believe it was in Germany, there was this IoT toy, uh, Clara was the name, like uh, a puppet, uh, where children could interact with uh, with the voice and it was hacked so people could spy on children. So it is actually a really necessary law to pass. So I think the industry realized that uh, also. And the really question is not about should we secure IoT or not? The question is, well, how do we do that in a risk-based approach so we don't slow down the innovation part? Because if we want to achieve sovereignty within the European Union, we need to have tech giant, tech champions from the EU. And for the moment, the European Union just missed the cosh for everything that happened previously. We don't have Google, we don't have Facebook, we don't even have TikTok, which is Chinese. So let's build something together. Um, another criticism that we have heard from the industry is that the CRA is not really aligned with uh, existing rules and therefore there might be duplication, for example, in terms of uh, reporting requirements. So how, how do you think that the CRA could be better aligned with you know, NIS2 or, or the, cyber, um, the Cybersecurity Act, for example? The Cyber Resilience Act was published on top of a tons of existing regulation. If you only take, uh, for instance, uh, connected objects, we already have the regulation on medical device, which is excluded from the text, the radio equipment directives, the machinery regulations, the general product safety regulation, which is currently discussed. And if you add to that software, we have NIS2 that you just mentioned, DORA, the certification scheme also that you just mentioned, EIDAS, etc. So at the end, we have a lot of things that uh, to comply with. And usually one product might have to comply with different regulation at the same time. And with this landscape that we have, well, if the texts are not in line with, we can have legal uncertainty for manufacturers, but it can also be complicated for users to choose, well, between two different objects, which one is good, which one is not. And the Cyber Resilience Act is a really interesting piece of legislation because it is the first horizontal rules. And I, I think it's an amazing chance for the EU to set a record right and to have something really well aligned. And 
the text addressed partially this issue in chapter one in article two, where they say that sectoral laws can prevail sometime over the Surveillance Act on certain conditions. But because of that, sometimes the way manufacturers will have to comply is a bit weird. For instance, if we take a look at artificial intelligence, which is directly mentioned in the text, well, if you have a high-risk AI, you will have to comply with the Surveillance Act. But the conformity assessment will still has to go through, through the artificial intelligence act. Uh, and the notified body will also be on the artificial intelligence act. But if the AI is considered as a critical product, then they should comply to the cyber resilience act again, which is a bit weird. And you mentioned, of course, the uh, reporting obligations that are under the NIS2. And I think it's quite a good example. NIS2 is a regulation for critical entities. And a, this question of reporting obligation was heavily amended during the legislative process. And for instance, the timing is quite different from NIS2 and Cyberresilience Act. And in the Cyberresilience Act, the scope is also much broader. For instance, uh, in the NIS2, they say that companies should report any significant incident. In the scope, it's any incident. And for me, it's a bit weird that a simple text notebook in your computer will have to report more incidents than a critical infrastructure. So it's really important for, well, for the cost, but also for the ease to develop it, to create new software and new IoT objects, to have everything well aligned so it's easy to comply. I come from the startup industry before, and for us, it was a nightmare to be sure that we comply with everything because it's really hard if you don't have a legal advice. You also mentioned this list of um, critical products. And as always, when um, you have a list uh, in a regulation, you see lobbies uh, trying to push in one direction or the other to exclude either exclude their products or include the competitor's product in the list. Um, as a lobbyist yourself, uh, how, how have you seen the industry moving uh, on this part of the regulation? Well, I haven't heard that much noise uh, on that front uh, yet, at least. Uh, it's indeed in Annex 1, if I'm correct, you, or Annex 3, you have the list of critical, uh, uh, not infrastructures, but critical products. And the main difference between products is the way they will have to assert the compliance for like the vast majority of objects, uh, Commissioner Breton said 90% of IoT and software, a self-assessment is enough. But for all the critical objects, the question is how they will demonstrate compliance. And if you are in this list, it's a bit more complicated because usually you will have to go through a third-party assessment that costs a lot of money. We are talking about like 25,000 euros, if I'm correct, from the impact assessment. And it can be like quite a lot for smaller companies because in NIS2, for instance, small and medium-sized companies are excluded from the scope, which is not the case for the cyber-resilience act. And then there are all the question of the cybersecurity scheme under the cybersecurity act. It will be possible to comply with the cyber-resilience act with that, but then companies fear that since it's a way to comply for critical products, that slowly but surely certification schemes can be not mandatory, but almost. And since there is a lot of debate about the scope, 
uh, of the of these uh, secu cybersecurity schemes in terms of sovereignty, for instance, it can be problematic for international um, companies. And I think as well. A European citizen, uh, we should not close our borders, especially not for digital, but we should work with our like-minded uh, partners, including the United States. Uh, interesting uh, relation between the, the cybersecurity schemes under the Cybersecurity Act and the CRA. Um, but I just want to, to go back to my previous point. So, you know, you're saying for um, an SME, might be very costly to run this impact assessment. But again, if you are putting a product on the market, um, it is your responsibility to make it safe. You know, um, you mentioned the, the uh, doll in Germany that was a big scandal because basically hackers could could uh, speak to children uh, by by hacking it quite quite uh, easily. So you know uh, why should we close an eye for? Uh, a small company if they are putting a dangerous product in the market. Yeah, I think what you underline is really important. And the thing is, well, most of my clients are software company and not product companies. So I do look at the Cyberis Insight uh, with this software scope. And I think indeed for products, it's certainly much easier to ask for compliance because you have already all this process of being sure that your product is aligned with uh, internal market rule, etc. So it's just one more step. And you already need to have a lot of uh, investment because you have to find the manufacturers, you have to distribute it in uh, different member states. So for software, the question is a bit different because you can have individual developers that are creating a piece of software on their own. You can have very small companies with no funding and usually you can create something with almost no money and maybe it will not be the case anymore for the next uh, few years because of that so well we touched also a very important point which is uh, should software be in scope or not and i think there are a lot of debates uh, on that regard craig Ward gaunak is a digital policy consultant at political intelligence thank you craig Ward. you're welcome it was a pleasure to be here that's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Curie. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.